0: Hi, I'm Samir Khaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Today we have a fun conversation with Donald Stalter, partner at Global Founders Capital, a global multi-stage venture firm with a team that has backed companies such as Slack, Away, and Brex. Before joining Global Founders Capital, Don worked in a variety of roles, including co-founding a company called Deal, which later sold to Groupon, where he then led Groupon's international office expansion in Europe and Asia. On this week's show, we covered a number of topics that range from portfolio construction methodologies, why being global is such an incredible advantage for them, and how they execute their complex business so systematically. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Vouch Insurance, a leading insure tech company started by founders and built for founders. Built specifically for the unique needs of startups and venture firms, Vouch's fully digital coverage takes just minutes to activate and everything from onboarding to claims is done through a single intuitive interface. Because of their mission of serving founders at every step of the journey, they're trusted by some of the biggest names in the venture world, including Silicon Valley Bank and Ycom Because Vouch is an insurance platform and not a broker, it works with its clients to manage, mitigate, and avoid risk. Check them out at www.vouch.us forward slash Venture Unlocked. Don, it's so great to have you on and thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Samir. So let's first get back to you, how you got into venture and your, your story.
1: You know, I started out in investment banking back in the day at Credit Suisse and the Tech M&A Group in San Francisco and worked with a variety of venture-backed businesses, including YouTube, uh, including B2W, which I mentioned to you previously, um, you know, big internet businesses that were sort of en route to being acquired. Uh, we worked with Google. Um, and sort of a whole host of venture capitalists along the way. I've been fortunate enough to grow up with a bunch of friends who sort of were very familiar with the space. Following my time at Credit Suisse, moved to London uh, and worked between London and San Mateo with a spin out of Jeffrey's uh, Investment Bank doing growth deals. We focused on, you know, sort of fast growing SaaS businesses uh, that were crossing sort of a variety of different categories, whether it be healthcare, consumer, you know, um, platform as a service. We looked at FinTech. Uh, it was a really good way to sort of cut my teeth on actual kind of buy side investing. of investment banking, it was always, on the buy side, it was all about really digging in and understanding what we were looking at. You know, sort of calling a spade a spade was a very, very exciting kind of process. Uh, during that period, I met, um, you know, some incredible people, including the founder of Unity, including the founder of Klarna, including, uh, you know, the founders of Zalando, uh, you know, and a whole variety of others across Europe and in the United States. And, um, you know, venture, I felt like it had been sort of coursing my blood forever, but became an integral part of my life sort of uh, by, you know, 2010, 2011.
0: You um, actually took a pit stop, though. You weren't, you didn't go straight from your time at Credit Suisse to becoming a full-time venture investor. You had a couple of operating roles. Talk to us a little bit about those and how those shaped your view on what type of venture investor you wanted to be.
1: I was actually in private equity right after Credit Suisse. Um, for, the, for two years. And during that period of time, it was a lot of, you know, um, you know, can we identify sort of an opportunity under a rock? And can we kind of figure out how to put debt on that business so that it ends up, you know, being kind of a, a 2x, 3x type of a success. But I was also talking to founders who were, you know, building businesses growing at 300, 400, 500% year over year. And it was quite a comparison to what I was doing kind of day to day. I wanted to build a business. Meeting these founders made me realize that there's nothing I wanted to do but actually go out into the field. There are too many headlines, you know, on businesses becoming a billion dollar unicorn, you know, and these business models seem just, just so exciting and so interesting, things that I could really attract to. So I stepped out of my job as a growth equity investor and, uh, and started to sort of moonlight uh, with a variety of different incubators uh, in London and also in the Valley, I was sort of back and forth uh, and ultimately came upon the Groupon model as one that was very, very intriguing. At the time, it was the fastest growing internet company in the world, you know, US-based primarily, and we knew that the business was gonna start sort of mopping up uh, similar businesses globally because it had already done that in Canada. Banded together w- with a couple of friends from London and from, from Germany and actually set up shop in Liverpool Street Station in London. Uh, we ended up kind of getting a floor uh, like right above the station and hired a couple of interns and brought in some actually some stockbrokers, which was pretty exciting because we knew that they were really good at getting on the phone and sort of contacting businesses. Uh, We set up a very rudimentary website called the Business City Deal. Had a very bland looking um, website and really wanted to stay under the radar because we knew it was a competitive space. And then we started to track what the most interesting sort of vendors or businesses might be that we could put on the site. We you know, went after spas, we went after restaurants, um, and we just lined up a whole bunch of different meetings. And we really worked hard to make sure that the price points were the right price points, that the margins we would end up having kind of on those deals were the right margins, uh, the descriptions were the right descriptions, and developed a playbook with that team of folks that we built out to you know, create an actual business. I think by the end of like month one, it was a team of 20, and we had, I think, about 100 deals on the site between London Manchester, Birmingham, and a variety of different markets across the UK, as well as Germany, you know, we raised funding, from, actually from uh, rocket internet at the time, and collaboratively, we built the business within a year, uh, just over a year and exit to Groupon, which was super, super exciting.
0: That's great. So you spent a lot of time in, in a variety of roles across geographies, it brings you to where you are right now, which is a partner at Global Founders Capital, which is a multi billion dollar firm across two funds, I think. A lot of people don't know a lot about Global Founders Capital, at least for the, the size and scale of what you do. Walk us through exactly what Global Founders Capital is, what is the model? And for me, it's an extremely fascinating one, which I do want to dig into, but let's just start with that.
1: So Global Founders Capital you know, was founded back in 2016. As you said, you know, we've got several billion dollars under management across two funds now. Um, you know, what we seek to do is to invest in the best entrepreneurs globally, call it pre-seed, call it growth stage, you know, we're relatively opportunistic. You know, we believe that you can get, um, you know, atypical asymmetrical returns just by backing the best people. I think that's sort of the first crucial principle that we go after. I think business models are, you know, important and we certainly do evaluate, like, is there an opportunity to go after this model in full force? but we're strong believers in sort of the twists and the turns of the journey. So if things change, um, but you've got a great team behind it, then we believe that you'll be able to succeed. So that's sort of a key thesis. And then in terms of the operations of Global Founders Capital, we're truly global. We're truly on the ground across kind of most geos around the world. So in the United States, we have an office in San Francisco, LA, New York, Uh, in Canada, we have an office in Toronto. Uh, in South America, we've got an office in Sao Paulo and Mexico City. If you go to Europe, we have an office in Paris. We have an office in London, Munich, Berlin. Um, you know, we have an office in, in Shanghai now. Um, we were probably the most global, call it cohesive fund in the world, where you know all the partners across the fund have regular Zoom calls, and we have had those for five years now um, on a weekly basis. We get updates on you know what people are seeing in different geographies on the ground, and we find ways to collaborate across. Um, each of those geos as well. I think that gives us an incredible amount of strength in terms of our ability to assess founders, our ability to assess models, um, and also just share best practices. Let's say a company in China is expanding into the U.S. and needs to find the best PR firm possible, there's a good chance I'll know, you know, I'll have some recommendations on who could be relevant. Or we've got a, you know, U.S. company, you know, looking for a VP of Europe. Um, We can pretty easily drum one of those up without having to call a whole bunch of recruiters
0: so we can move really, really quickly. First off, it's impressive what you all have built in a fairly short amount of time. And what struck me as I was preparing for this interview is the number of complexities in running a business like this, whether it be the number of geographies investing across stages and sectors. And what I was really curious about is how does this translate into the type of portfolio you build? Can you maybe walk us through what is your portfolio construction model and how did you arrive at that conclusion? It was the right thing for the fund.
1: You know, flexibility, first and foremost, these days within the venture world is absolutely paramount. And we believe, you know, again, first and foremost, investing in the very best founders. Um, You know, we believe those founders will yield the very best venture returns, um, you know, for, for LPs, you know, asymmetrical returns can be had at the series. B or the Series D, I mean, if you look at Airbnb, the B was done at, I want to say around a billion dollar valuation, and then it was a hundred billion dollar, you know, sort of IPO. And so a hundred X, I mean, even from a, you know, seed stage deal standpoint is a a great return. So I think things have changed. I think the magnitude of returns and opportunities has significantly changed over time. I mean, if we look not even five years ago, it was like, well, a, a unicorn was still something meaningful. Um, unicorns are, are fantastic, but investors are looking for decacorns, or they're looking for, you know, $50 billion companies these days as sort of, you know, reasonable outcomes. Um, and so the market is just, um, the, the market has changed, you know, very, very significantly. And valuations have also changed as, as
0: sort of a part of that storyline. Do you guys set a target in terms of how much you want in early stage versus growth? And do you have a formula of, how you even think about it from a geo standpoint: In terms of being formulaic, it's hard to
1: put a caliper on the future. very generally speaking, we want to be able to support our founders and we want to be able to support the growth of our businesses you know from the time of first investment uh, to the time of you know third, fourth, fifth, sixth investment. and so staying close to our founders is, is crucial and the way that we do that you know given you know, our large portfolio is by appointing kind of each member of a team with a founder to, you know, support and to really understand, you know, what their needs are. We create what we've called sort of a pull function. You know, if a founder is looking to, you know, do a lot of hiring during a particular period of time, you know, we'll be all hands on deck through that particular member of the team to support them with that hiring. We also have a global platform team that will be able to support with that, but we're not, you know, looking to kind of create any sort of large seminars or programs where you sort of do an all encompassing, call it portfolio. I think it's really um, powerful to sort of have an ad hoc approach where we're a Swiss Army knife. And we're a team that's, you know, built businesses from scratch many times before, to be able to, you know, pack a lot of
0: punch with our activities. How large is the team right now? So in the US, we've got about seven total. And what about globally? How large is the team globally, including the operations team?
1: Yeah, the team globally is around 35 people. And we've got folks who have built businesses, who've, built, um, chief, who've been chief marketing officers at consumer businesses, who've you know, built fintech businesses, chief technology officers. Um, you know, we've got you know, quite a few folks kind of within that stable.
0: One of the, uh, the natural questions that would come up with a model like this, and it's just rattling around my brain as you were talking, is 500 companies. It provides a ton of diversification across stages and type of companies and sectors. And your model is heavily influenced by helping companies at whatever stage they are. Whether it's a pre-seed company that you put in a few hundred thousand in versus a growth company, you put tens of millions in, you're still supporting those. But at 500 companies, the question is, how do you scale that? Are there any particular insights? You do have a 35-person team, which is much larger than most venture firms. But are there any insights that somebody listening could take away on what actually works in terms of adding value at scale?
1: I think it's really sort of looking at the little lower layers of each business and understanding their needs. Every founder is different. You know, every business sort of has its gaps. So for example, if we look at a business like Brax that's been, you know, exploding and is one of our most, you know, exciting businesses, we came in at the Series B, it was a low valuation and now it's valued at 7.4 billion. Um, We've worked to support the founders since the start in terms of helping them, you know, recruit new customers and new partners. And simultaneously, we've helped our portfolio by introducing Brex to them. Brex helps, you know, teams sort of build out their financial technology acumen. And so we've been able to do is, you know, introduce 100 portfolio companies to Brex, 20 of which have actually converted to customers uh, over time. And some of those customers were introduced at the Series B and didn't end up converting, didn't end up being sort of relevant. Um, but at the series c the series d they did convert and become kind of real customers so the goal is to really you know first off have that interplay within our own portfolio we've got our own universe of partners and customers when you have a portfolio that large simultaneously you know leveraging the team is absolutely key so different members of the team have you know experience within the direct to consumer space they'll make the consumer intros to the brex's of the world you know we've got folks who are focused more on the data science side they're better suited to sort of uh, help support the partnerships on that front, and so on and so forth. And so we end up with a matrix style um, strategy where, you know, introductions, um, you know, support is done by folks who you
0: know, are able to provide it. From what I'm hearing, the type of companies need different things at different stages, right? A series C company needs something than a pre-seed company. And you have a, this network of experts that, one, live with that within the firm, and then folks that you're tapping outside of the firm in terms of your contacts. But what is the execution model for this? How does the operations team work with the investment team to make sure that you're doing it consistently across the portfolio?
1: First and foremost, being close to the companies and understanding their needs is the responsibility of the investment manager. You know, we have regular calls with the founders. Uh, We trade emails regularly. You know, we actually set up sort of a process when we invest um, to onboard the businesses and Make sure that you know we've got a good cohesive sort of you know track going and so we have got kpi updates we've got our recruiting needs and a whole variety of other bullets and so once we've got that rhythm going we populate an air table or we'll populate a google sheet sort of depending on the task and then we can work off of that to sort of supplement and bring in advisors to bring in folks from our operational team to execute on those tasks it's it's almost a venn diagram of like you know who's got that experience to help support that business as well as the investment manager, sort of partner it up. I'd also say you know we don't try to overwhelm the founders. We try to really be relevant. We try to you know have things that convert very very well and and really know their needs, know them well. I mean, I'd say like a big part of it, just to kind of elaborate, is the personal relationship side of it. I mean, we'll, we'll you know very proactively have dinner, kind of beyond the whole pandemic we're very, very excited to get back in the mix with our founders and meet with them personally.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important. And, and I'm, I'm also happy that we're able to start seeing people again and build those personal relationships, which sometimes I do think lack on mediums like Zoom and certainly phone calls. So that makes a ton of sense to me. And I did want to go back to maybe the mathematical part of portfolio construction, because I think about funds. And there's two ways people think about early and growth stage investing. One is your pure play early stage, so you, you know, invest at seed and series A, and then there's growth funds, and there's the IVPs and Meritex of the world. And then there's some folks that do a little bit of both, either through a single fund structure like you do, or what they do for a lot of the, the early stage firms, they create opportunity funds. And those opportunity funds are investing in the, the B and C round companies that have um, matured from that early stage portfolio. What was your thought in terms of having it all in one place, one pooled fund? And how do you underwrite from a risk return standpoint, an early stage investment to a late stage? And what is the target return that you're looking for for those different areas?
1: Given that the world has changed so significantly, if we look at like, you know, the ribbits of the world, we look at a variety of other call it um, sector focused venture funds, you know, we see that you know they'll invest at the very early stages, they'll invest at the late stages, and really to kind of cut to the core, if you want the several multiples that LPs want these days, you need to take sort of a non-obvious or sort of a non-consensus view, and that's one that we take. I mean, people might agree that something can be really, really big, but they may not understand to kind of what degree um, is, is sort of the realization that we've had in very recent history. I mean, look at the coin bases of the world where um, there was a lot of there's sort of a lack of clarity around you know how crypto would sort of play out ultimately. And yet that was another sort of hundred billion dollar you know direct list. And so you know I think the perspective is that we have to really react in in the direction that the market is going. You know, we have a certain amount of capital under management. And if we want to you know turn that into you know 3x, 4x, 5x, 6x, 10x returns, it really is again about the founder. Ownership does matter because we are limited by the time that we can invest in in businesses. And so we really do have to focus on our very best. And that's why we have to be as close as possible to them through this sort of platform, through this operational approach that I described. We deliberately have been entrepreneurs. And so I think we can suss out opportunities um, pretty well, sort of vis-a-vis some funds that are more, just call it asset focused. Um, And so I feel like we can make decisions very quickly. I think another element of what we do is if we invest very, very early, and you know we don't get a huge kind of ownership stake, we can move very, very quickly to reinvest because we'll you know build that close relationship. We won't have to do significant diligence, and we can actually you know sort of sink our teeth into it more quickly than call it an external party would. Um, and so that's you know something that's been relevant. I think um, that way we can sort of do the
0: work up front, and we don't have to necessarily keep reinventing the wheel. We talk about the redefinition of outcomes, and you brought up a company like Coinbase, and we've seen other companies that have gone public, like the Shopify's, for example, of the world. Zoom, everybody knows about the uh, meteoric rise since they went public, but a lot of the uh, the value typically gets captured in the private markets today versus 15 years ago. You would see a uh, Google that went public at 18 billion. What's your overall view on the market today? Because a lot of what you're underwriting too is that. Decacorns continue. Today, I think there's 771 unicorns valued at about 2.5 trillion dollars. A lot of people have this concern that we're at the peak frothiness of the market, where valuations have gone well ahead of their themselves. When you're doing some of the growth stage investing that you are, those Series B, C, D rounds, where the valuation can easily be 250 to well over a billion dollars, how are you underwriting to the future and do you think that some of these valuations, and in terms of the size and scale, are transit? Or is there real permanence, regardless of market cycles?
1: I don't really believe that there's permanence. I mean, I think if we look at, you know, uh, incredible entrepreneurs like Elon Musk, who believed that we could be on Mars, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there's an absolute incredible opportunity ahead. Um, we, you know, we believe in sort of the global landscape. We don't just think of the United States. We don't just think of kind of Germany discreetly or the UK or China discreetly. You know, they're all massive markets. We believe in sort of the global stage. And when we think about the global stage from a valuation standpoint, suddenly your TAM is much, much larger than it would be investing at the pre-seed and assuming that Texas, New York and California are your markets. There's a really interesting phrase from Uh, When I went to university, a professor was sort of defining globalization back in 2004 and called it sort of the compression of space and time. And I thought that was an epic way of sort of illustrating what it really means. I mean, Zoom obviated a ton of the boundaries and the borders that we experienced in terms of the globe. Um, You can be on at 2 a.m. and you can have a colleague, you know, where it'll be 8 a.m. And then you can have another colleague and it'll be noon and you can all be talking about an opportunity and building a business together. If you look at Deal, for example, the payroll and compliance business that enables people to you know, hire workers uh, all over the world sort of instantly, um, the 10Xers aren't all just in Silicon Valley anymore. I think there's just a, a huge, huge opportunity where you know, the market is just much larger than we think. And I think being humble and sort of, you know, being sort of modest around TAM is, is a fantastic thing. But you know, if you look at Airbnb in the early days, I think they assessed kind of the market to be, you know, in the to call it $3 billion range. And yet, you know, look at where it is today. In summary, you know, investing at the later stages, investing at the B, investing at the C is oftentimes still just scratching the tips of the iceberg.
0: I agree with that. And, and I think a lot of people have come to the realization that technology and innovation is truly global. And we've seen areas like China, Israel, now let M be significant players in terms of company formation investment. You've spent a lot of time, your team spends a lot of time across the globe looking at companies. What would you say is the non-obvious thing that you would pull out in terms of globalization right now?
1: So the non-obvious thing I'd say for sort of venture investors is the fact that um, there are a lot of bootstrap businesses globally that have the potential to be, you know, multi-billion unicorn businesses. I feel like businesses like Adyen, for example... You know, which was completely under the radar for a very, very long time. These, vis sort of U.S. investors, um, you know, their businesses like Ogon, which is a payments business based in Belgium, and a whole bunch of other examples where founders just by virtue of being capital efficient and sort of a, a scarcity of capital have built um, really, really big businesses from day one. I think another um, sort of non-obvious opportunity is to look to the smaller geographies. Is to look to the Nordics. Is to look for you know geographies where the populations, um, you know, do not afford the opportunity to build big businesses and go global from day one. So if you look at again Spotify, if you look at Unity, you know, if you look at Klarna, those came out of the Nordics. If you look at Australia, which has maybe thirty million people, Canva came out of Australia, Culture Amp came out of Australia. These are massive global businesses. So in terms of looking for interesting opportunities globally, sometimes if you focus on the smaller geos, you end up with you know, some of the larger businesses,
0: the data actually suggests that 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 is true, because, you know, I mentioned the 771 unicorn number 387 are in the US, the rest are actually outside of the US. So it does speak to the size and scale. And you have teams that are in these different places, which a lot of people say that you have to have local talent to really see the best deals, and consistently source the right ones to invest in, But I I think it provides a logistical challenge for a lot of firms because you have so many partners investing out of the same pool of capital that live in different time zones, see everything. How do you manage that practically when you are investing out of one fund and ensuring that everybody has enough capital to deploy in their local markets and there isn't biases that are created or at least land grabs in terms of investing out of that single pulled vehicle out of one geography,
1: if we can get into the best deals globally, and we can do it consistently, no matter the geography, if it's Pakistan, if it's, you know, Germany, if it's if it's UK, if it's US, we'll see interesting returns, and then we'll consistently raise new funds. So we'll always have the ability to, you know, dip back in, you know, to a fund, and we'll be able to invest
0: in that next huge opportunity. It's interesting to think about the other side of the capital market, which are the LPs, and you have a fantastic group of LPs that have invested and supported you with a model that a lot of traditional LPs would say, it's just too much. There's too much complexity, too many companies, too many geos. There's a lot of risk embedded in so many people, but yet you've been able to tell a story that really makes sense. You've been able to get into an amazing group of companies. Which include the Brexes of the world at you know a fairly early stage. What have you heard from LPs, and how do you get them comfortable with investing in models that aren't necessarily the orthodox, which a lot of people actually don't believe in as GPs, but they get pushed into it because that's the only way they can raise capital. Tell us a little bit about how you went about it.
1: We want to always be transparent and be supportive of our LPs and of of you know this, the community as a whole, and I think. You know, because we've been entrepreneurs ourselves, you know, we've had to solve a whole variety of different problems. You know, one of the most interesting experiences I had while working at Groupon was acquiring sort of a Facebook clone based in Taipei. The business um, was literally, you know, a social network, um, had very little to do with Groupon, except for the fact that, you know, they were working with local ad businesses. Um, You know, they were trying to build sort of a mobile first app that would allow people to do everything from connect with friends to date. That there were sort of some of those local ads on there. We actually spun the business around. We restructured it. And we turned it into sort of Groupon Taiwan. Now, you know, I'm giving you sort of that anecdote because our belief is that we're such strong entrepreneurs and we built things kind of time and time again where we've seen those twists and those turns. That uh, we look at businesses through the lens of opportunity rather than challenge. And I think you know, case in point, I mean, Brex in its earliest days was actually a VR business. Um, you know, the founders you know had enough gumption and enough success to get incredible backers uh, kind of from the start. And there's so many stories of businesses that have sort of pivoted into kind of incredible things. I think if you look at different geographies where maybe it's not a pivot, maybe it's more like, well, this is a bootstrap business that hasn't been growing very quickly. Maybe we see that spark of insight in the founder where we believe it's going to be a massive opportunity. We back them, we'll support them to the hilt.
0: I think one thing inherent about VCs and entrepreneurs, and it's a good thing, is that you become very good at underwriting to the upside. What happens if all this goes right? My experience with a lot of LPs is it's what happens if things go wrong. And what you're trying to do is somehow reconcile those two things. So people understand what the upside is, but also mitigate the risk. So going back to the question of the LP side of things, how do your LPs get comfortable with a model that isn't straight down the middle of traditional orthodox, which obviously is the game that works for you and makes a ton of sense, given your operational background. What have you told them and what gets them comfortable in terms of the risk mitigation aspect?
1: First off, it's our entrepreneurial track record, as mentioned before. I mean, we've got Zalando, we've got HelloFresh, we've got Groupon, Airbnb. Um, you know, we have a list of you know, delivery hero uh, twenty or thirty businesses that have been built up, sort of under our watch, from seed to multi-billion-dollar businesses, and I think that's a very, very unique sort of asset that a lot of LPs, you know, haven't seen before. And we've done that globally. We've done that in the United States. We've done that in Latin America, Europe. We've done that in every geography around the world. And we've been in the trenches. We've actually we've hired people. We managed people. We've done business development. We've succeeded. We've failed. And that's I think very, very unique sort of as a bedrock. And then simultaneously, from a Sort of an asset class, kind of global first, on the ground, full transparency, decades fr- of friendship within those ecosystems, um, you know, decades of understanding, I think it's a very, very rare asset as well. So I think sort of combining those two things, along with, I think, what's a pretty exciting track record, um, you know, kind of to date, yeah. you know, off the back of five
0: years of investing, um, we've got, you know, quite a bit of credibility. One of the things that I, I've seen more often, actually, is more interest in into investing in venture from LPs that are outside of the U.S. So there's a finite group of LPs that sit in the U.S. in terms of endowments and foundations and pensions, but we do see other areas, including Europe, Latin America, and others that are actually actively investing. Have you found a difference in terms of the approach that international LPs take versus traditional U.S. LPs?
1: I'd say you know more traditional kind of international LPs are often more akin to you know potentially LPs that you would see as like corporates or older corporates kind of within the U.S. rather than like serial LPs or sort of fund of funds um, that you would see in the U.S. That would be sort of my comparison. But then obviously you've got major cultural nuances. You've got um, you know probably experience within different asset classes more kind of within the private equity and you know, hedge fund uh, asset classes than within the venture asset classes. Ventures kind of birth in Europe is a relatively recent thing. I lived in in London again. Um, you know, it was very much uh, sort of a, a new economy. There really wasn't much in the way of early stage venture growth. So it's really happened over the past, you know, I still think it's five to eight years.
0: Which is still early in its uh, maturity and, and still in very, very much growth mode. And I'd Make the case that's true for the U.S., which leads me to uh, the last question before we move to our heat check segment, and that's really your view of the market today. And if we're sitting here talking on July twenty six, two thousand twenty two, what are we talking about as we recap the uh, the last twelve months?
1: <laughs> yeah, this is this is a question I feel like I ask all my friends. I'm I'm an optimist by nature. I believe that things are going to continue to move in a in a good direction. I think you know, we've experienced a very very long bull market. This kind of globalization that I described is one of the catalysts of um, the bull market and the opportunity that comes off the back of it. Now, relationships between nations, um, you know, sort of on the on the commerce side, in some cases, need to be sort of smoothed out. There are certain conduits that need to be improved, but I feel like people are finding solutions to those issues. Uh, You know, cryptocurrency. You know, I think um, you know we're we're moving in a positive direction. A year from now. I think there could be nuances around kind of the macro economy, inflation, I think there could be question marks in terms of investments that have been made over the past, you know, couple of years, you know, there there's no doubt going to be all sorts of corrections. But I think those corrections could end up being sort of course correcting. And we'd end up will end up in a situation where things continue to sort of be bolstered and grow.
0: It's a little bit of an unfair question. And, and you know, I always ask myself about this stuff. But you never know what's going to happen macroeconomically. You know, I think all of us sit here and we're very optimistic about the exponential pace of innovation, which we've seen. And you could look no further than the two vaccines that were produced using the mRNA technology, which, of course, we've never seen anything move that quickly from a vaccine standpoint. Markets will come and go. But I, I do think that the globalization of the world around technology and life sciences, as well as the continued redefinition of what outcomes can be for these companies is something that we'll continue to see, even if we see a short-term blip at some point. Let's go into the heat check. The first question I have is now that you've invested for a long time, really across both private equity and traditional venture early stage and growth, what is the most counterintuitive lesson you've learned?
1: It's not about the metrics in the early stages. It's it's about the founder. It's fundamentally about the founder. Um, it's not about the model. You know, I mentioned this kind of a few times. It's really about kind of the spark, the electricity. You know, the inertia that a founder has in terms of their desire to build something. We've seen this time and time again. You know, if you look at you know many of the multi-billion-dollar businesses, IPOs. Um, you know, a lot of the founders. You know, started out with a
0: piece of paper trying to design an opportunity. Well, history would back that up because the notion of just backing exceptional founders because you think that they'll figure it out even if the initial business model isn't it. And we've seen companies like Slack and YouTube and Twitter all sort of fall that route and um, certainly the case uh, at the early stages. Speaking of investors and thinking about all the people that you've worked with because you do so many deals, you probably have a ton of exposure to co-investors and people that you work with that you admire. Is there an investor out there that you particularly admire because of the way they work, the way they invest? If so, who is it, in, and what is it about them?
1: Absolutely. So I'd have to say Wesley Chan at Felice's Ventures, and the reason is, is you know, first off, he's been able to invest in literally every category, whether it be biotech or software. Um, you know, he's been able to you know sort of uncover those massive uh, unicorn opportunities. He's probably been at it now for around 15, 20 years. So he definitely has had the experience under his belt, but he brings a ton of operational expertise to the table as well. And it's always great to compare
0: notes with him uh, kind of from my experience at Airbnb. Yeah, and it was a big get for uh, Felice's matches to bring on Wes. And if you, uh, if you have a chance, ask him about the Richard Branson story. It's a, it's a great one in terms of how he helped a founder. <laughs> Will do. My, my last question is, now that you mentioned an investor, outside of Global Founders Capital, as the uh, let's, let's exclude that for a second. Who do you think is the best venture firm in the world?
1: I'd have to say Felicis Ventures, I'm just a huge fan of kind of their remit and the approach that they take from, you know, the early stage through to late stage, you know, they'll the lead series Bs. I mean, I I feel like, you know, describing kind of our strategy, it's,
0: it's, um, it's one that definitely parallels it. Well, one thing a lot of people may not know, about Felicis is their first fund was sub $50 million. So Great things can start from very small beginnings, and uh, Iden and Wes and the rest of the team have done a fantastic job. Don, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining the uh, the podcast.
1: Awesome, thanks so
0: much, senior. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Don. To learn more about him and Global Founders Capital, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com, where you'll find detailed notes in the show. Venture Unlocked is also available for download on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.